Well, I recently read the statistic that some 2.4 million Americans uh, get married every single year, which means if you do the math, uh, that someone somewhere in our country is getting married about once every four minutes, and uh, in almost a decade of ministry, it also turns out that I've been responsible for somewhere between 10 and 20 of those weddings. One of the things that I've noticed uh, at those weddings, and, and maybe you've noticed them at uh, weddings too, is that the reading you just heard uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is uh, a particular favorite among those who are getting married. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And Paul goes on, it, it always protects. It always hopes. It always trusts. It always perseveres. And, and you hear those words, and it's almost impossible not to picture two people staring into each other's eyes just about to say the words, I do. That's why it may surprise you to learn uh, that those words uh, were never intended to be spoken at a wedding. And uh, what's more, the kind of uh, love that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 has nothing to do with the romantic kind of love uh, that two people might feel for each other, and instead everything to do uh, with the kind of sacrificial love that Jesus has shown us and now calls us to show the whole world, people in here, people out there, people everywhere, calls us to show the whole world as we follow him. And so in the time we have together uh, this morning, I want to do three things. Uh, first, I want to unpack the context uh, for today's reading from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, the story behind the story, because it colors the way in which you hear these words from the Apostle Paul. Uh, second, uh, I want to explore this radical, countercultural kind of love uh, that God has shown us in Jesus and now calls us to show the whole world as we follow him. Uh, because this kind of love is so often at odds uh, with the kind of way that our world talks about and celebrates love all around us. And third, uh, I want to ask a very simple question. I want to ask the question, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us on a day like today as we live our lives and try to follow Jesus? And so it's uh, with those three things in mind that we turn our attention to Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. The year is 53, 54, maybe 55 AD. Paul's living in a city called Ephesus, uh, which is located on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. And it's here in the city of Ephesus uh, that he receives word about some stuff, some problems that are going on uh, in a church that he helped get started. And that church is the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth is three, maybe four years old. It's located about 250 miles west as the crow flies across the Aegean Sea in modern-day Greece. And uh, what you need to know about this church, this community of believers, maybe even a network of house churches at this point, is that they're a mess. You see, there are uh, Christians in this community who are suing each other. And, uh, and there is a, a guy, a guy at the church in Corinth who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And, and when this church gets together to worship, when this church gets together to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, like we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper later this morning, some people are getting drunk. 
Some people are getting drunk, and other people aren't even getting a chance to receive communion. And so things are a mess, and, and this mess has divided this church, and has divided this church on a number of different issues. And this leads Paul uh, to take up five of these issues and write this letter to the church in Corinth. And that's why I've said in the past, even though that this is one letter, it reads a little bit more like five essays, five essays on five different topics with a final greeting from Paul to this church that he so dearly loves. And if you're following that outline, today's reading is located in the midst of the fourth essay. There's stuff before it and there's stuff after it. And the surprising thing is that while 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is about love, that's not what this essay or this section of 1 Corinthians is all about. Instead, it has to do with how these Christians are getting together. More specifically, how they're getting together uh, to worship. We've got to remember uh, for the Christians in Corinth, uh, worship isn't just something they do in a big building on Sunday mornings. Worship is something that they would do in, in each other's homes all around the city. And so worship is more like a, an interactive Bible study with some prayer and some singing and, and the Lord's Supper. And as people get together, they bring different gifts, different talents, different abilities. And this isn't a problem. It's actually a good thing. It's a good thing until some of the Christians in this church start using those gifts and those talents and those abilities to look down on each other. And all of a sudden, this time where they're supposed to get together and to build up the body of Christ is being used to tear it down. And that's why in the previous chapter in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul compares uh, the church, the body of Christ, believers, to a physical body. And he reminds them that, that every single person is important and, and every single person's abilities are important. And, and jockeying for position, uh, deciding who's best, that's the wrong way to go. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to show them the right way to go. Or as he says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I will show you the most excellent way. And so that's why when you hear these words, uh, you probably shouldn't picture a bride and a groom staring lovingly into each other's eyes with beautiful music playing in the background. You should picture a frustrated and upset and angry parent who's rebuking their children because, because the two of them are fighting about who's got the best kind of toys. If I can speak in the tongues of men and angels, Timmy... And, and if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, Susan, and, and if, I, if I give everything I have and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, Michael, I am nothing. And then Paul goes on to describe what the nature of love really is like. And, you know, it's, it's beautiful, and it's poetic, and it's no wonder that people read this at weddings. And, and you take it out of context, and you can make this passage mean all sorts of things, but you read it in context, and all of a sudden you realize that Paul is writing to a group of Christians who are not doing this. And so now he's got to show them what love looks like. And this past week, I uh, came across a, uh, an article with a rather provocative title, the title of that article was uh, Love. Love is a useless word. 
And uh, you know, you can take an article like this in all sorts of different directions, uh, but it's pointless, rather simple. Uh, the word love gets used in English in so many different ways that in a lot of ways it's come to mean nothing at all. I mean, just consider this. I, I can say, uh, I love ice cream. And I love ice cream. I probably love ice cream more than I should. I love ice cream, and I also love a beautiful sunset. Because when I see a beautiful sunset, I can see the way in which uh, God orders and takes care of the whole world. Or I can say things like, uh, I love my table saw uh, because I can use my table saw to build things. And I also love my wife, who I promise to love for better, for worse, in sickness and health, for richer, for poorer, until death do us part. I mean, I love all of these things. But what does that mean? The problem is, uh, when you're a Christian, you hear the word love used all over the place, and, and, and you might just take some of these meanings, one or two of them, and, and think you know what love is, uh, but really all you're doing is importing what a lifetime of training in our culture has taught us to do. And so, and so when Paul talks about love, what is he talking about? And this is where it's really helpful um, that we have 13 of Paul's letters, and we can see how he thought about and talked about love, how he used the word when he ministered to others. And, and for Paul, who learns what love is from Jesus, love isn't primarily a feeling that happens to you. I'll say that again. Love isn't primarily a feeling that happens to you. Love is something you do. I mean, it's rooted in action and behavior. It's putting the interests of others uh, before yourself. And, and, you know, that's important because our feelings about others, they change over time. But love, love according to Jesus, is about acting and behaving in a certain kind of way, uh, putting their interests first. And sometimes you feel like it. Sometimes you don't. But you do it anyway. And so, three simple examples uh, from Paul's letters. Uh, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, the Son of God who loved me. And, And how do I know that he loved me? Well, it's not because he felt a certain kind of way. I mean, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Either way, Paul tells us uh, that God did something. Jesus gave himself up for us. It's almost the same story when Paul writes uh, to the church in Ephesus. He tells them, as dearly loved children, follow God's example and walk in the way of love. And and what is the way of love? I mean, how do we know what that looks like? Well, we look at Jesus, and his love isn't just a feeling. Steve, I feel great about you today. It's something he did. He gave himself up for me, for you as a sacrifice. And we can point to his actions and to his behavior and say, I know what Jesus' love looks like. And and the most profound part of all of this is that, that Jesus does this while we are still sinners. So that's what Paul tells the church in Rome. While we were still sinners, while we were obstinate and opposed to God, Jesus died for us. 
And it's, it's this radical, countercultural picture of love. I mean, this is not what a lifetime of training in our culture teaches us to do. A, a lifetime of training in our culture teaches us to do this only when we feel, when the other person really deserves it, only when, when this is what we really want to do. But you see, love, love for Jesus looks different. Father, uh, Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you're willing, take this cup from me. See, the cross, the cross is not what Jesus wanted to do. And yet, notice how his prayer ends. Not my will, Jesus says, but yours be done. See, love is an action. It's, it's not a feeling. It's something you do. It's putting the interests of others before yourself. That's what Jesus did for us, and that's what he calls us to do for others. And, and so you know the context. You, you know this radical, countercultural picture of love uh, that God has shown us and now calls us to show others. And so what does it mean for us today? I think it means two things, and they both flow out of the way in which Paul begins the passage you just heard. Paul says, I will show you the most excellent way. That's what Paul tells us. And the word that he uses uh, comes from the English word uh, hyperbole. I will show you the perfect way, the best way, the highest way, the superlative way. I will show you the most excellent way. And it turns out that this word was a word that was used in the ancient world before it was used in the New Testament. It was used to describe the best way through a treacherous and intimidating mountain pass. I will show you the the most excellent way, the best mountain pass. The greatest of these, Paul says, is love. See, as we navigate life, there are all sorts of intimidating mountain passes, intimidating at home, intimidating at work, intimidating at school, intimidating in the kind of relationships we have. And and so what does all of this uh, love talk mean for us? Well, it means two things. First, it means that when we find ourselves in front of an intimidating mountain peak, we are going to be tempted to find another way around find a shortcut, to get, figure out how to get from where we are here to how we get over there without using love. You know, there are all sorts of uh, ways around, and you probably know better than I which one you tend to choose. Being right, avoiding a conversation, avoiding a person, uh, making sure that you're the loudest person in the room, protecting what you have, using vulnerability as a tool, pretending that what you know you don't really know. You see, when there's an intimidating mountain peak, we're going to be tempted to find another way around. It's the first thing that this passage means for us today. And the second thing is this. Uh, even though that is the case, God takes the way of love. Not my will, Jesus says, to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, but yours be done. See, God knows how we treat him. He knows how we treat each other, and yet he still takes the way of love. He still gives his life for us. And and when he rises again, 
he makes it possible for us to do the same kind of thing, to show the same kind of love to the world around us because, because Jesus is now in charge. Jesus is king. And so if love hurts my reputation, I remember that Jesus is the one who tells me who I really am. I'm a dearly loved child of God. And if love exposes my weakness, I remember that my strength is found in him. And if love means that I am under, misunderstood, I remember that I am fully understood in him. And if, if love costs me what I have, I remember that everything I have is a gift from him. And if love costs me my life, I remember that one day there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. See, God takes the way of love And he makes it possible for us to show this kind of love for others. I mean, this is what this passage means for people like you and me on a day like today. It's what it means for us as a community of faith, a church. As we gather together in this place, as we abide in Jesus' love, and as we head out to be God's presence in the world all around us. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.